let me draw your attention now to the word of the Lord as we find it in Hebrews 11, verses 5 and 6. I'd like to read those verses to you, but before I do, brothers and sisters, I remind you that what we're about to hear is the word of the living God. And he does not send forth his word without it accomplishing that for which he intends. It will succeed in all of his purposes. And so let us come before his word, receiving it from his hand, understanding that he will use it to great effect in our lives for the furtherance of the gospel. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found, because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we acknowledge before you that your testimonies are wonderful. And so our souls long to keep them. Indeed, Lord, the unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And so we open our mouths, as it were, and pant because we long for your word. So turn to us, we ask, and be gracious to us, as is your way with those who love your name. Make your face to shine upon your servants this morning. And teach us your statutes now, we pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as we've walked through the book of Hebrews, what we've seen again and again very clearly is the aim or goal of the author of the book of Hebrews, the author of this sermon, to his original audience. And that goal or aim is to encourage them to persevere in the faith, faith in Jesus as the Messiah that they have professed because they are being tempted to go back to the old covenant types and shadows from which they have come out of. And they're being tempted to turn away from faith in Christ back to those types and shadows because they're being persecuted. They're being persecuted by the Romans. They're being persecuted by unbelieving Jews. And so his aim is to encourage them, challenge them, exhort them to continue to walk by faith and not by sight. And we've seen as we've looked at chapter 11 that the way he does that is by giving specific Old Testament examples of saints who endured until the very end. They walked by faith and not by sight as their faithful God Their faithful covenant God sustained them. And we saw the wisdom of the author choosing Abel. At least I hope you saw the wisdom in the author choosing Abel last week. But this morning as we now look at his next example, we should be struck at how interesting and mysterious this character is. Of course, it's the character of Enoch. And he's mysterious to us because, for one, there's not a whole lot of information given about him. But what's also mysterious is if you go back to Genesis chapter 5, where he's mentioned in a genealogy as one of the descendants of Adam, there's no mention of faith. There's no mention of Enoch's faith explicitly. So what an interesting choice to present as an example of one who endures to the end by faith. And yet, I think it's intentional. 
I think the author intentionally chooses Enoch so that his audience will ask that question and go, but we're not told that Enoch had faith. Well, the author is going to present an argument to them in verses 5 and 6, this big logical syllogism that proves by airtight logic that Enoch, in fact, had faith. And so here's his syllogism. His major premise is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. That without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's his major premise. You cannot please God without faith. Minor premise, Enoch did walk with God. He did please God. Therefore, what's the conclusion? Enoch must have had faith. Why? Because otherwise he wouldn't have been able to please God. And we know that he did. Therefore, he must have had faith. And so this is the argument that he's trying to lay before them that they might be encouraged to persevere in the faith. And so much like last week, as we look at verses 5 and 6, I want us to see three things that Enoch, by faith, does and receives from his faithful God. Three things that, by faith, Enoch does and receives. First of all, we'll see how, by faith, Enoch was taken up, that body and soul, he was translated into the very presence of God into eternal glory. Second of all, we'll see that by faith Enoch pleased God, that he in his person and in his walk with the Lord pleased God by faith in the Messiah. And then thirdly, finally, we'll see that by faith Enoch drew near to God. He drew near to God, understanding that God first in covenant grace had drawn near to him. And so as a result of that, he now diligently seeks his faithful covenant God. And again, the intention of this example is that this original audience would be encouraged to press on, to hold fast, whatever the loss, whatever the suffering, that they would press on in the faith in Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, may the Spirit use that to the same end in our lives this morning as well as we behold the example of Enoch. So let's look first then at how by faith Enoch was taken up. Look at verse 5 with me. By faith... Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Let's hit the pause button right there because we're just in this first point going to look at verse 5. What are we being told here? Well, we're being told the same thing that we're told in Genesis chapter 5, that Enoch walks with God and then he is no more. He is not found. He's taken body and soul, his person, to be with the Lord. Now, here's the question that we have to ask. We know that Enoch has fallen. He's fallen in Adam, and he's fallen through his own sinful choices that then issue forth from that fallenness that he inherits from Adam. So what needs to happen to Enoch in order for him to be translated into the presence of God, body, and soul? Well, here's what we know about the corruption we receive from Adam. It affects our entire person. It affects our body, and it affects our soul. So what has to happen to Enoch? What does the Lord have to do to Enoch? He has to perfect his soul, and he has to glorify his body so that he is now fit to be able to stand in the presence of God and worship God. That's exactly what we're told in the New Testament in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 15 
verses 42 through 44, that we receive this spiritual glorified body and our souls are perfected so that we can go and be with the Lord. And here's the thing that we need to understand. What happens to Enoch here in his soul being perfected and his body being glorified is exactly what will happen to any believers who are still alive at the time of Christ's return. Paul says the exact same thing in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 52. He says that we will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And what he's talking about is the same thing that happens to Enoch here. We're taken immediately, caught up in the air, and our souls are perfected, our bodies glorified, and we're brought into the holy presence of the Lord. Now here's the question that we have to ask then. Why was he taken up? Why does the Lord take Enoch up in this fashion? Well, the text tells us. Look at verse 5 again. By faith, Enoch was taken up. Why? So that he should not see death, and he was not found. The normal course of existence for human beings ever since the fall is that they will now die. Isn't that what the Lord promises? If you eat of this tree that I told you not to, you will surely die. And Adam and Eve eventually died. And what happens in death? What happens in death is your soul is unnaturally separated from your body. That's not the way it's supposed to be. It's a result of the curse. It's a result of the fall. God creates us in his image, body and soul, wonderfully, beautifully joined together. And what happens in death is your body is buried in the ground and your soul, if you're a believer, goes to be with the Lord. It's perfected and you go and be with the Lord. Or if you're an unbeliever, you go to hell. And then when Jesus comes back, our bodies are resurrected and reunited with our souls. And so here's the thing. Enoch does not taste death. He doesn't taste the death that all of his forebearers did. That's what's striking. If you go back to Genesis chapter 5, Enoch is seventh in line from Adam. And what you see of all of his descendants is again and again, we're told some basic information about them. And then we're told this haunting phrase, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. But then in stark contrast is the life of Enoch, where he is transported into the very presence of God, and his body does not die. His body is not separated from his soul, but instead both are perfected and glorified. And what the Lord is doing here is he's graciously giving this gift to Enoch. He also gives it to Elijah later on in Second Kings chapter 2, verse 11. But what the Lord is doing is he's graciously sparing his servant, giving his servant this gift that he should not have to see death. He walks with the Lord all of his days until one day he walks right into heaven as the Lord translates him. Now, here's the next question we have to ask. How did this happen? How was it that Enoch's body and soul were translated into the presence of God? Well, what does the author say? Look at verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up. By faith. Now, so that we might understand what the author's saying, let us first understand what he's not saying. He's not saying that Enoch's faith in and of itself is so powerful, so strong, that it ends up being the efficient cause of his translation into heaven. That is not what the author is saying. Why? Because we're told who the efficient cause is in Enoch's being taken up to heaven. We're told in the middle of verse 5, because God had taken him. 
God is the efficient cause of Enoch's translation into heaven, not Enoch's faith. Second of all, we know what the author isn't saying, is he's not saying that Enoch's faith is somehow meritorious. Enoch, by his faith, has not somehow put God into his debt, so that God now owes it to Enoch to translate him into heaven. No, 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 that's not what the author is saying either. What he's clearly saying is that this translation into heaven is purely of the grace of God. It's a gift that God gives to Enoch. And how does Enoch receive it? He receives it by faith. The Lord has given him the gift of faith, which is just an open hand by which he receives the Messiah and all of his benefits. And one of the benefits that he receives in the Messiah is this translation into the very presence of God. Now here's another question we need to ask. Why this truth? Why is the author bringing this truth to the mind of his audience? Remember his goal. He's trying to encourage them to persevere in the faith. So why this example from Enoch's life that he's taken up? Well, I think it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. I think the point is the author is saying the Lord is so faithful to his covenant people that he gives Enoch this gift of faith, and then he also gives him the gift of being taken up without tasting death directly into God's presence, body and soul. Behold the power of God and his faithfulness to his people. And so here's the point. If he did that, Hebrew Christians, if he can do that, he will also sustain you through whatever persecution and loss and suffering you experience. The God who was faithful then to Enoch in this great thing will also be faithful to you, to sustain you. And guess what? Even if it does cost you your life, you can know because of Enoch's example that God's salvation includes the redemption of your entire person, not just your soul, but also your body. And so even if you taste of death, you will experience a resurrected, glorified body when Christ returns. So press on in the faith, even if it costs you your life, understanding that if the Lord did this faithfully, he will sustain you as well. So we've seen first how by faith Enoch was taken up. Second of all, let's look at how by faith Enoch pleased God. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me again. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, here's the question that we have to ask. We're told in Hebrews 11 and in Genesis chapter 5 that Enoch pleased God, that Enoch walked with God. And so the question we have to ask then is, how did he do that? How did he please God? Well, Hebrews 11 verses 5 and 6 are abundantly clear. It's again by faith. It's by faith that he pleases God. And here's the thing, ever since the fall, that has been the case. Ever since the fall, the only way that you can please God is by faith. And the reason for that is because ever since the fall, we owe God two things that we cannot attain by our own works or by our own efforts. First of all, we need forgiveness from God. We have sinned against him. We have rebelled against him. And here's the thing about that sin and rebellion. 
We owe God a debt that we need him to forgive that's infinite. You know why it's infinite? It's infinite because it's against an infinite God. Here's the problem with an infinite debt. We're finite beings. And so we don't have infinite resources to pay God back an infinite debt. We're incapable of doing it. So we can't earn forgiveness from God, but the second thing that we can't earn is a righteous standing before God. We're incapable of obeying God's commands perfectly and obeying His law. Ever since the fall, all of our good deeds, all of our good works are so corrupted by sin that they cannot pass the judgment, the scrutiny of a perfect, righteous, holy God. And so here's the sad reality, though. Even though that's the case, that we cannot earn forgiveness or righteousness before God, we still, in the flesh, before we receive the gift of faith, that's what we strive to do. We vainly try to earn forgiveness from God and work for a right standing before Him. That's our mindset before faith comes. And that's Paul's whole point in Romans chapter 9. You don't have to turn there, but let me read this for you. In Romans chapter 9, Paul is talking about the unbelieving Jews of his day. And here's what he says in verses 30 and 32 of Romans 9. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Paul asks, why? Now listen to this. If you didn't listen to anything else, listen to this. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. That is the human problem before faith comes. We not only know that we stand in debt before a holy God, but then we vainly, by our own efforts, try to earn forgiveness and righteousness. But then when the gift of faith comes, we stop looking to ourselves. And what do we do? We look to God. That's John Owen's whole point When he comments in his commentary on Hebrews 11, faith alone is the gracious power which takes us off from all confidence in ourselves and directs us to look for all in another. That is in God himself. And here's the thing. In whom does God provide this for us? He provides it for us in his son. He provides it for us in the Messiah. And so here's the truth that's being taught to us then. Ever since the fall, we now need a mediator in order to have a relationship with God. Now, before the fall, Adam and Eve had immediate access to God. They didn't need a mediator. But then after they sinned and rebelled, what happens? They're kicked out of the garden and a cherubim is put there to block the way, to cut them down if they try to re-enter back into the temple garden the holy of holies. And so now the only way that we can interact with God since we're sinful and since we can't earn forgiveness or righteousness is if we have a mediator. And who is that mediator that God has provided? It's the mediator that he promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And Enoch was looking to that Messiah. He was looking to that promised one. He was looking by faith to Christ as his mediator so that he 
could please God by the forgiveness that Christ earned by his death on the cross and by the righteousness that he earned by fulfilling all of the law of God, living the perfect life, that that might be counted as his own. And see, here's the thing. Ever since the fall, we've needed that mediator. That's why Jesus says in John 14, verse 6 of himself, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That was true even of Enoch ever since the fall. And so we ask the question, how did he please God? By faith in the Messiah who earned forgiveness for him and fulfilled all righteousness. That's how he pleased God. But second of all, once he pleased God in that way by looking to the Messiah, as a result of that, he then lived a life that pleased God. Again, what does Genesis 5 tell us and what does Hebrews 11 tell us? They tell us that Enoch walked with God in Genesis and that Enoch pleased God in Hebrews 11. The only reason that there's a difference there, it's talking about the exact same thing, is because of a translation difference. One is in Hebrew and one is in Greek. That's what the scholars tell me. But they're talking about the exact same thing. That then in his life, he actually walked in covenant faithfulness with God. By faith, he obeyed God's commands. By faith, he offered animal sacrifices as worship to God, through which were typified for him the coming of the Messiah who would save him. And so he walks in covenant faithfulness with God. That's what we're told both in Genesis 5 and in Hebrews chapter 11. He lived a life of righteousness that pleased God. And this is the whole point that Jesus gets at in the gospel. What does he say? He says in John's gospel, if you love me, what will you necessarily do? If you understand the love I have for you, then you will love me and you will keep my commandments. John picks up that idea in his second epistle in verse 6, where he says, And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the second sense in which Enoch pleased God. He lived a life in conformity to God's commands, and that pleased God. He did that by faith. And he didn't do that to somehow try to pay God back. He did that out of gratitude and out of thankfulness for the fact that God had accepted him that he pleased God through faith in the coming Messiah. And then he lived that life that pleased God by faith and out of gratitude. It's the same idea that Paul gets at in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, in light of God's mercy towards us, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And through Christ, by faith, when we present ourselves to the Lord as a living sacrifice, the life that issues forth from that is pleasing to him. By faith, in conformity to God's law. Now here's the question. How would this truth have been encouraging, again, to the original audience? Why does the author highlight this fact that Enoch walks with God, Enoch pleases God, How would this have been an encouragement for them to press on? Well, I hope it's pretty obvious. Again, what's the temptation that these Hebrew Christians are experiencing? They're wanting to turn away from faith in God to return back to the Old Testament types and shadows that God no longer works through as a means of grace. And so what he's telling them is, listen, if I'm right about my argument that without faith it's impossible to please God, 
And Enoch pleased God, therefore he had faith. By returning back to the old covenant types and shadows, you're abandoning the only way by which you can please God. God is not pleased by your good works in and of themselves. And God's not pleased with your vain attempts at trying to please him by your own efforts, works done in the flesh. It's only by faith in the Messiah and then as you walk in obedience to him by faith. So you see what he's telling them. He's encouraging them on the one hand, keep doing what you're doing by faith. Keep pleasing God by faith, even as Enoch did. But understand that if you turn away from that, you are no longer pleasing to God, you are displeasing to God. And you are leaving the protection of a covenant relationship with God. And you are turning to damnation under God's wrath. And so this is both a warning and an encouragement for them to keep going in the way that they are going. And what the cost will be if they turn away. Well, there are warnings and encouragements for us as well. This morning, brothers and sisters and unbelievers here this morning. Let me start with unbelievers. Hear me loud and clear. If you are not looking to Christ in faith this morning, it is impossible. And I'm telling you this on the authority of God's word. It is impossible for you to please God. God doesn't care how moral your life is. He does not care how kind you are to your family, your spouse, how honest you are in your job. None of that, none of your good deeds, none of them please God in such a way that you can be accepted as forgiven and righteous by him. You are that profoundly fallen that no matter how well-intended you may think you are, it is impossible for you to please God by your own works. So I plead with you, don't try it. Give up on it and look to Christ, the one mediator between God and man. Turn to him and faith. I pray that you will come to the end of yourself And believing the lie that you can earn a right standing with God, because that's what faith does. (laughs) Faith brings us to the end of ourselves so that we fly to God and we fly to his provision in his son. And then for believers here this morning, I just want to make it short and sweet. We need to understand and rejoice in the truth that it's only by faith that we can please God both in our justification by which we're declared righteous by God, that he says of his son first, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The father now says that about us in Jesus. Not only that, but also in our sanctification. It is only by faith in Christ as we look to him that our sanctification is pleasing to him. So don't think, well, yeah, I start by faith in Jesus, but then, man, I've really got to do all these works in the flesh in my own strength. No, 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 no. We're justified and sanctified by faith in Christ, receiving the means of grace that he provides, walking in them, knowing that he communes with us through them, and through that communion transforms us from one degree of glory to the next. So we've seen that by faith Enoch was taken up, by faith Enoch pleased God, and thirdly, let's see how by faith Enoch drew near to God. Look at just verse 6 with me of Hebrews chapter 11. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever, listen to this in particular, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, before we delve into what the author means here by 
whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I think, again, it's helpful to explain what he doesn't mean by this. Because I read several commentators throughout church history who set the bar frighteningly low in their understanding of this. And here's typically what they'll say. They'll say, well, the only way you can draw near to God is, first of all, you have to believe that he exists, that he just is actually there. Well, what's the problem with that, brothers and sisters? Unbelievers, every unbeliever knows that God exists. Psalm 19, Romans chapter 1 It is clear from what has been created. God has revealed through creation and through our own creation, being made in his image, that he exists. So I think the bar there is being set way too low. Just simply acknowledging that God exists. And second of all, what they'll say is that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Again, from the light of nature, Paul says this in the book of Romans, we can know that God is the rewarder of those who seek him and do good, and that God is the punisher or the avenger of those who do evil. We can know that from the light of nature. We can know that by our own reason. We know that God is just. And so I think the bar is being set too low there. So what is the author actually saying? If he's not saying that, then what in fact is he saying? Well, first of all, I think what he's talking about when he says that God is is he's highlighting the object of their faith. He's saying, listen, the object of your faith needs to be the one true living God who exists. And that's very countercultural, especially for our culture today. Because what does our culture say? You don't have to have faith or believe in anything in particular. Just have faith. Faith and belief in and of itself is a virtue necessarily. That's what the culture wants to tell us. But that's not what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, no, the object of your faith needs to be the God who exists. But he's saying so much more than that. He's saying so much more because what these Hebrew Christians would have heard when the author writes, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, their minds would go back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Now, why is that? Because in the Hebrew, the Hebrew scholars tell me, God reveals himself to Moses as what? He says, I am that I am. But the Greek scholars tell me that In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is what these Hebrew Christians would have been familiar with, and from which the author of the book of Hebrews again and again recites, their minds, in the Septuagint, it says that God is. You tell them that I am the God who exists. I am the God who is. And so by saying that God exists, their minds would go back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where God says, I am that I am. I am the God that exists. And so why is that so important? Remember, God is taking his people out of captivity to the Egyptians. The Israelites are under the cruel taskmaster of Pharaoh. And God says, I hear the cries of my people. And so I'm going to graciously send them a prophet, priest, and king in Moses. And I will lead my people out of captivity. And what does Moses say? Timid Moses. Lord, well, they're going to ask who sent me. So what do I say? And he says, you tell them that I am the God who exists. I am the God who is. And you see what the Lord is revealing here is not just that he's the self-sufficient one. Out of whose sufficiency he creates all things. But what he's also communicating is, I'm drawing near in covenant grace to my people. I remember the covenant I entered into with their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I now draw near to make good 
on those promises. I'm drawing near to enter into a gracious covenant relationship with you. And here's the thing. We have to understand that God draws near to us in covenant grace if we're ever going to draw near to him. We have to know that first. Why? Because if you're just aware of who God is from the light of nature, you're going to be terrified. You're not going to draw near to that God. He's the God of the hurricane, the God of the tornado, the God of so many terrifying things. And with an awareness of your own sinfulness, you're going to say, how can I draw near to this God? Unless he comes to you and reveals to you, I am a gracious God who is pursuing you and entering into a covenant relationship with you. But that's not the only thing that he says. He doesn't just say that you must understand that he is the God who is, who exists and draws near to you in covenant grace. But second of all, he says, in order to draw near to God, you must also believe that he is the rewarder or he rewards those who seek him. And this has always been the case. It's always been the case that when the Lord enters into a gracious covenant relationship with his people, He rewards them. Best example of that, think of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, the Lord draws near to him. And what does he say? In Genesis 15, 1, he says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, and now listen to this, and your exceedingly great reward. Do you hear what God is telling Abram? He's saying, in entering into a gracious covenant relationship with you, Abram, I'm giving you myself. I am giving you myself. Now, brothers and sisters, what does that tell us right out the gate about what this kind of rewarding that God doesn't mean? It doesn't mean that when God rewards us in a gracious covenant relationship, that he's doing that based on any merit or any earning on our part. I mean, think about it. We've already clearly established earlier on that we can't earn forgiveness from God by our own efforts. And we can't earn a righteousness before God by our own efforts. So what in the world makes us think that we could ever earn the reward of God himself? We can't. So then what is it telling us? It's telling us that this is a gracious reward. It's grace that the Lord gives himself to us. We cannot earn this relationship. We cannot earn communion and fellowship with him. And here's the thing, unless you know this, you will not draw near to God. Now, here's the question that we have to ask and follow up to that. How do we then come to know this? How do we come to know this about God? Only by faith. Only by faith. And here's the thing, the Lord comes to us and gives us that faith so that then we receive these truths with an open hand, so that we receive Christ the Messiah and all his benefits. And so what does that tell us? Long before we ever diligently seek the Lord, he graciously seeks us. Who's the great seeker? Not us. God is the one who seeks us. Proof of that? Think of what the Lord says in Isaiah 65 verse 1. Here's what the Lord says. He says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. We never ask the Lord to come into a gracious relationship with us. We never ask him to come into a covenant relationship with us. Why? Because it would never happen. What does Psalm 12 say? Sorry, Psalm 14. 
Psalm 14. And what does Paul say in Romans 3.11, quoting from there? He says, there is none who seeks God. So if the Lord never diligently sought us in a covenant relationship, we would never seek him and it would never happen. The Lord goes on to say in Isaiah 65.1, I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. And so you see what this is telling us is that the Lord is the one who gives us the gift of faith so that we receive Christ and all of his benefits. And then after he's sought us and regenerated us and given us the gift of faith so that we receive Christ, do you know what then happens? Do you know what the fruit of that is? The evidence that that's truly happened is that we then in response diligently seek him so that we are pursuing fellowship and communion with him in scripture reading and in prayer and in corporate worship. This is where we want to be with God's people, worshiping him and communing with him in a unique and special way. We diligently seek after him by conforming our lives to his commands and asking him for the strength to do so. Why? Because the Lord uses these means to commune with us. And here's the incredible thing. Here's the whole point. As we diligently seek him, this should blow your minds. That in and of itself should be reward enough. All the things that he gives us. But then what does he say? He says he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. As we diligently seek the Lord, he then rewards us graciously. should blow our minds. Now, how are we to think about that? I think St. Augustine, early church father, is very helpful here. In his exposition of Psalm 102, he says, By crowning or rewarding our works, by crowning our works, God is crowning his own gifts. Think about it. The Lord is the one who gives us the gift of faith. He gives us new life in the Spirit so that we then diligently seek him. And then on top of that, he rewards us. He crowns his own gift. We wouldn't do any of those things if he didn't first graciously seek us. And so what's happening is we're having grace upon grace in Christ the Messiah. And our relationship with him, he he crowns his own gifts. Augustine goes on to say, if God crowns us, we are crowned by his mercy. It's mercy that we even pursue the Lord diligently. And it's mercy that the Lord then crowns that mercy. It's grace upon grace. It has nothing to do with our merits. That's why Martin Bootser, the great reformer, says the exact same thing, probably ripping it off from Augustine, rightly so. When God rewards our good works, Bootser says he is rewarding his works and gifts in us rather than our own works. Now, why would this be an encouragement to these Hebrew Christians? Why would this be an encouragement as they are experiencing loss? You know how bad you feel when you're tempted to give in to sin, when it's just knocking at your door? They're feeling beat up, probably feeling distant from the Lord. They're experiencing persecution, loss, suffering. And so what the author is doing here is he's reminding them that all of their agony will be worth it. Whatever you lose, whatever the struggle The prize at the end is worth it because who's the prize? It's God himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, unbroken communion and fellowship with God and with one another. And brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but it often feels like the Christian life is just a longing and an aching for that, which is why we can say 
with the Apostle John at the end of Revelation, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Not just because of COVID. Even without COVID, we live in a fallen world and we ourselves are still fallen. We long for that sweet, perfect fellowship with God where we are given himself. It's not about the benefits. It's not about peace of conscience. It's not about a glorified body or a perfected soul. Ultimately, all of those are means to the ends of receiving our great reward, God himself. And so you see, again, there's an encouragement here. Press on. What is greater than God is your prize. Compare anything else that you'll gain in this life to him, and it'll all come up short. But there's also a warning. If you abandon faith in Christ, you don't get him. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And yet he loses his soul. He loses God himself. And so he's challenging them and he's encouraging them to press on, to behold what awaits them by faith, because by faith they already have it in a sense, but they will have it fully then. And so do you see how this would be encouraging to them? Well, I hope it's encouraging to you as well. Because what are we talking about here? We're talking about the fact that God has drawn near to us, brothers and sisters, in his son, in a gracious covenant. That's the only reason that we diligently seek him now by faith, because he first gave us the gift of faith when we were spiritually dead. And as a result of that, and a result of being pleasing to God in his son by grace through faith, we now live lives that are conformed to his moral law. We love his law, and we love to live in conformity to it, to bring glory to him. And one day, what will happen? While I can't promise you, and I think it's highly likely that any of us here this morning will be taken up as Enoch was. Remember, it's only happened to two people thus far in the history of the world, Enoch and Elijah. Here's the surety that we do have. Even as we taste death, Christ conquered death. As surely as he stands at the right hand of the Father in a glorified body, we too will have a glorified body and a perfected soul to the end of what? to the end that we might worship God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So brothers and sisters, the encouragement here is to keep our eyes on the prize, not the benefits, but God himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let us diligently seek him. Let us zealously run this race, as Paul says, so as to win the prize, knowing that we will attain it. That shouldn't lend itself to laziness or slack but zeal and diligence, that it's a done thing. He was faithful to Enoch. He will be faithful to us so that we can say with the Apostle Paul, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on by grace through faith in the Messiah toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Triune God, we're once again overwhelmed at the display of your character and your word. Our sin is so clearly revealed to us in Scripture. And yet our testimony this morning, may it be our testimony all the days of our lives, is that your mercy is more. Your grace is greater because you are greater. And so we thank you for graciously pursuing us. Thank you for the gift of faith by which we receive Christ and all his benefits. And pray that we would diligently seek you, trusting you, understanding how amazing it is that you reward the very work that you do in us, grace upon grace. Use your word to motivate us to pursue you, we pray, to the end that you might be glorified, that the nations 
might hear the good news. Only you can do this, Lord. So we ask that you would. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.